Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn now with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 this morning. And we're going to be looking at the topic of overcoming through Christ, overcoming faith, a, a topic that we could not look at it, in my estimation without having read at least a portion of Hebrews chapter 11, the great, um, as, as they call it, the hall of faith, where we see these, these great men and women of the faith who have gone before us who have overcome because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, overcoming through Christ. John is kind of coming now to the home stretch. He's entering into this last chapter. He's going to give some final and closing exhortations, and then verses 13 through 21 really serve as his summary. And really, I think the verses before us today, verses 1 through 5, really, in a way, are summary exhortations. He links together those topics that he has exhorted of throughout the first four chapters of this letter. John is writing as a pastor, as a father in the faith, and he's writing of his desire that these saints would stand firm, that they would overcome through true faith in Christ and resist the false teaching of their day. He wants them to have an overcoming faith, an overcoming hope, because they serve a Savior who overcame the power of death and the power and the penalty of sin. Overcoming faith is a faith that we only have, we only possess by God's grace and through being alive in Christ. Overcoming faith is a living, active faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read our text, 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time together. Would you please, if you're able, stand with me as we hear God's holy scripture. God's word is inerrant, inspired, it is infallible. It is his word to us to sanctify us and to conform us to the image of Christ. Hear God's word. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts for the glory of his name. You may be seated. Now let's go before the Lord and ask his blessing and his help as we study his word. Let's pray. Father, you are exalted, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator and sustainer of all things. All things are in submission and subjection to you. You sovereignly and providentially order everything that happens in life. This is your world, and it operates according to your purpose, your design, and your plan. As we come to your word today, Lord, we have this great topic before us about the victorious, conquering, overcoming nature of our faith. Lord, as we consider that, may we firstly understand that we only overcome because Christ overcame. May we understand that we only have faith because you have granted it to us by your grace. 
May we be humbled before you. May we be joyfully grateful at the thought of our salvation. May we consider the cost and the price and the penalty of our sin that was laid upon Christ at the cross. Lord, I pray that you would break us at the thought of our great and grievous sins against you. May we understand just, just a small bit of your holiness so we can understand just a small piece of the weight of the offense of our sin. So Lord, don't give us that knowledge and that understanding to lead us to despair. Give us that knowledge and understanding to lead us to lift our gaze to Christ. To see the great and glorious, risen, reigning Savior. Lord, as we look upon the one who overcame sin and death, may we be reminded by your word and through the working of your spirit that we must overcome. That an overcoming faith is evidenced by a holy, righteous, devoted, joyful life. Lord, may we be freshly reminded that you're the owner of cattle on a thousand hillsides, and every sacrifice, every offering we can give you, you have no need of. Lord, what you require, what you demand is an offering of worship from a thankful, joyful, and pure heart. May that be our desire today. We ask that by your Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts. By your Spirit, would you convict us of sin? By your Spirit, who is great and mighty in power, would you exhort and encourage and press us onward? Would you help our frail minds and our hearts that still battle against sin? Would you help us to comprehend your truth today and apply it to our lives, knowing that we do so because we love you, knowing that we love you only because you first loved us? May we be a people for your possession, zealous for good works, the ultimate goal of glorifying your name. For all this in Christ's name, amen. Well, as John moves towards his closing, he has a, a few exhortations left to offer. If you've ever listened to a preacher, you know when he says we're moving towards closing that we're not really at closing. We're just starting to summarize with a few more exhortations. And that's what John is doing here. He has one more test really to offer these children of his in the faith. That's how we've studied 1 John. It's a series of tests of the genuineness of faith and salvation. And the test before us today is the test of overcoming faith. Does your faith in Christ remain? Does your faith in Christ overcome the world? Do you overcome through Christ? The answer, beloved, is to see that genuine faith always, always remains and overcomes. You may not feel like your faith is going to overcome. You may feel the frailty and the weakness of your sin-battling, sin-stained flesh. But dear friend, if you have genuine saving faith in Christ, that faith will remain and you will overcome. 
How can I be so sure of that? For our Lord and Savior said as much himself, John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So a little earlier in John's gospel, John 6, verse 39, Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Dear friend, you have hope that your faith will overcome, not because of any working in you, but because you are in Christ, saved by Christ, kept by Christ. Christ. It's not the strength you can muster. It's not the discipline that you can develop. Though you must battle in strength, you must walk in godly biblical disciplines. But your hope, your assurance is not rooted in that. Your assurance is because Christ keeps you. And if that's not enough, though it must be, Jesus also told us that my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one will snatch you out of the Father's hand. Let me give you a kind of a thesis statement, and, and coupled in that maybe an outline as well that will follow. The goal today is to see that we display faith in Christ's triumphant saving work by holding to right belief, by walking in devoted love, and by practicing joyful obedience. Say that one more time. We display faith in Christ's triumphant, saving work by holding to right belief, walking in devoted love, and practicing joyful obedience. So the outline then, right belief, devoted love, joyful obedience, and triumphant faith. Those are the things that we must pursue if we will overcome through Christ. This is how, this, this is maybe not how, this is what it looks like when you are overcoming in Christ. So verse 1 and verse 5, really kind of bookends of this text, show us the importance, the necessity of right belief. Overcoming faith is marked by right belief. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Verse 4 would tell us that whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And verse 5 says, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So you have these two statements describing those of the faith. You're born of God... And you overcome the world. But what marks those who are born of God and those who, are over, who overcome the world? They believe, John says, Holy Scripture says, God says, through John, you believe in the Messiahship, that, Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. You believe in the Messiahship of Jesus, and you believe that he is the one true only Son of God. So let's begin by thinking about the word believe. We need to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believes in verse 1 and verse 5 as well is the Greek word pistuo. Signifies belief or persuasion of a thing. But it goes deeper. Vine's Dictionary tells us that this word means placing confidence or trust in something. So you must have a confident belief, a confident trust that Jesus is the Christ. This is not some simple take-it-or-leave-it knowledge. No, it is a confidence-producing, life-entrusting faith. Romans 10 would have something to say about this type of faith. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, if you confess with your mouths Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, 
And with a mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. You believe with your heart, you confess with your mouth. This belief produces a confidence that results in confession. So one simple, clear, and necessary outworking of true, genuine, saving faith is that you willingly and joyfully confess, profess, proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior. You notice I said Lord and Savior there because we need to tie in not just Lord and Savior, but John says that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. Maybe you're familiar a little bit with this biblical concept. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. This is uh, an idea that would have been very familiar, especially to the Old Testament saints, because the Old Testament priesthood pointed to this being anointed of God. Leviticus 16 verses 29 through 34 takes this idea and applies it to the high priest specifically. It says the high priest is the one who is anointed. The calling of the high priest in this day was a high and a holy calling. Leviticus 4 verse 3 tells us that the high priest could even sin in such a way as to bring guilt upon the people. You say, how is that right? How is that just or fair? Well, MacArthur explains by saying that the priest was a, in a representative position for the people. So, like how in Adam we all fell and inherited the sin nature, so in a similar way the high priest could sin in such a way that would bring guilt and shame and God's judgment on the entire nation of Israel. But that same chapter, Leviticus 4, the next couple of verses, verses 4 and 5, also tell us that the high priest could offer an atoning sacrifice for that sin. That was how the Lord had set up the priesthood. The high priest would go and offer an atoning sacrifice both for himself and for all the people. So maybe your mind is turning a little bit now and saying, okay, but how does this tie in to Christ? How does this tie in to Jesus? Remember, being the Christ means that he is the anointed one. This is his position and his role. He was the perfect fulfillment of those high priests. He is, he was, he always will be the great high priest who entered into the Holy of Holies and offered a perfect sacrifice. The sacrifice once and for all, sprinkling his blood on the mercy seat so that you could come in faith and repentance, believing that he died on the cross, taking your punishment, taking the stroke that was due to you for your sin. And he was laid in the grave. And on that third day, he rose from the dead, victory over sin. Now he's returned. He has ascended to the right hand of God on high, where he intercedes as your great high priest. What you need is to come to this Christ in faith and in repentance, believing in him, asking him to forgive your sins, and then turning from those sins because he breathes new life into your dead soul. Matthew Henry said of Christ's work here, he said that he perfectly prepared and furnished the whole work of eternal salvation. Perfectly prepared and furnished the whole work of eternal salvation. So the right belief that is necessary to overcome in and through Christ is a belief that Jesus is the great high priest. He is the only perfect, acceptable sacrifice for sin. He is, as he said, the only way to salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father but through me. Ask yourself a question from this. 
Are you confident, completely confident in this work of Christ? Or do you still battle against thinking that you've got to do a little something? You know, maybe you give Jesus most of the credit, but you still got to do a little something to receive his grace. Dear friend, no. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. You come with nothing. You offer a life of repentance and devotion and worship and praise. And by his grace, he saves you. Not by anything that we do, but because he is merciful. And we see Jesus as our high priest, but then coming to verse 5, we see that John says, Who's the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Believes, again, is the same concept. From verse 1, it's this confident, hopeful trust and belief. And John is pointing now to that common battleground of his day when, when the saints were battling against the Gnostics who said that, well, Jesus... He, he can't be man and God at the same time because flesh is evil, spirit is good. He's got to be one or the other. John refers to Jesus. Jesus is a historical figure. That was his name as a man, as a human. John is saying you must come to Jesus of Nazareth and believe that he is the only begotten son of God. And we thought a lot about this idea throughout the letter because this is really the main thing that John was battling and trying to strengthen and shore up the church against. But just broaden this idea out today. Uh, you know, I think, I think there's actually a form of Gnosticism today that maybe we don't fully recognize as, as being this same Gnosticism, but really it has the same roots of, of trying to divide the person of Christ. But much more than that, we live in a day where we'll just find these people, they say, well, I'm a spiritual person. You know, I don't identify with or in the church, but I'm a spiritual person. I find my spiritual acceptance because, yeah, I believe that there's a higher being, you know, the, those, the man upstairs types. Those are the types of people that we often encounter today and really, either outright or by implication, that type of mindset rejects the authority and the veracity and the sufficiency of Scripture. And in doing that, those people still think that they're going to receive some form of Jesus. But then it's not the Jesus of the Bible, because the Jesus of the Bible says that every word of the Scripture must be fulfilled. He is one with the Father. He is one with the Spirit. And therefore, this Bible must be true. So one of the primary battlegrounds of our day is the veracity and the sufficiency, the authority of Scripture. We as the church are the bride of Christ. We belong to Him and we must submit to Him and to His Word alone. You can't have Jesus as Christ and Lord and Savior if you don't have the Bible as His Word. The one who overcomes the world, one who overcomes through Christ, believes what the Bible says about Jesus. Plain and simple. If you would overcome the world because of the faith that the Lord has given you, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, you must believe that he is the true, only, begotten Son of God. The second mark to consider, we have right belief and then devoted love. Again, a topic that we've given a, a good bit of attention to because it has been given much attention from John. Look at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2. He says, whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. Let me give you a little bit of a literal translation of the end of verse 1. Whoever loves the one who begets, the Father, 
the one who begets, then loves those or the one born of him. So you see how that ties in then to that first part of verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born, is begotten of God. Whoever loves the one who begets loves the children of God. Specifically, I think there's even a, a, a direct tie-in to Jesus. Think of John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that if you believe in him, you'll have everlasting life. In John 8, 42, Jesus said, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. I have not come on my own initiative but he sent me. Dear friends, we can't disconnect the chain. If you're born of God, you will love God. If you love God, you will love the one whom he sent, and you will love the ones whom he calls as his own. The saint must love Christ as the bridegroom, and if you're a saint, you must love his church as your and his people. Then John moves really into the plural in verse 2. By this we know we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. We know that we love the children of God. Do you catch that? We know we love the children of God when we love him and when we observe his commandments. The love of God, you loving God, is the source and the strength of every good work. Loving one another is a good work, and if you don't love God, then whatever it is that you want to call love of others, it's just morality. It's just legalism. It has no point. It has no purpose. If you say you love others without loving the Lord, what you're really doing is pursuing some sentimental, self-centered, emotional love that does no good. Remember, 1 John 4, 7, John said what? Love is from God. God is love. Love originates with God. It's defined by God, and certainly God is is able then to tell us what love ought to look like. To overcome with Christ, we must be devoted, we must be marked by a devoted love for one another that flows out of our love for God. That's where it all must start, with love for the Lord. You guys know I like to tie in uh, um, parenting applications because I think one of our greatest roles as the church is to strengthen parents because we live in such a dark age where we as parents with little ones need to be strengthened so that we're able to, to build into our children the truth and the gospel that the Lord might save them and raise them up to be warriors for the truth. And just thinking about this idea that that we show our love for others by loving God and observing his commandments. You think about how we teach that as parents. As parents, we teach our children to just generally obey, to generally do what they are told. But we've got to remember, and we've got to put into practice, that behavior modification is not the goal. Okay, so when your child is, is small, they need to learn Almost like you would see someone doing with their dog just to obey direct commands. If we're out in, in, the, in the parking lot and, and your child starts running toward the road, they need to be able to obey a direct command. When you say stop, they need to stop. But that's not the end of parenting. The goal is that we teach them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, to come to Christ in faith and repentance, and then to obey all that he has commanded. So let's not lose sight of either of those because they both have their place in a godly home. Pressing on into the end of verse 2, there's this statement that 
frankly, we just need to reckon with. We need to read it. We all need to understand, okay, how does that actually work? And then we need to think about how we apply what the Lord says. We know that we love the children of God. We can skip over that next phrase because we can join together the next. We know we love the children of God when we observe His commandments. We know we love one another when we obey. So do you understand that if you walk in a life of sin, you cannot love a fellow saint? You can't properly love others before rightly loving and obeying the Lord. Proper love for one another is rooted in devoted obedience to God. Devoted observation of His commands. You try to love one another while you're walking in sinful disobedience, you'll quickly come to find out you can't do it because you're not walking in the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, the first one Paul gives us is love. So we know we love one another Yes, when we treat one another with love and respect and seek to do spiritual good to one another, yes, that is the outworking of love. But if you ever think that you're loving without obeying the Lord, you're missing the point, missing the mark. What does the world tell you about loving others? Just think about it. What does the world say? To love others, you must first what? Love yourself. It's false, it's wrong, it's heretical, and it's unhelpful. Loving others does begin with something internal, but it's not loving yourself. It's a heart that's transformed that loves God and obeys Him. If you want to love others, obey the Lord. Spurgeon says that love is a practical thing and that without obedience, love is just a mere pretense. Love without obedience, but saying you love God or that you love others without a life marked by obedience is hypocrisy on display. It's mere pretense. To love one another is to walk in obedience and love for the Lord than to seek to do spiritual good, to, to encourage, to uplift, to hold accountable, to gently, lovingly, patiently point out sin, to pray for one another, to desire to spend time with one another, and not just to desire it, but actually to do it and to make it happen. Because if you're going to build a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ, it's going to be done by spending time together, by fellowshipping, by praying together, by weeping together, by reading and studying God's Word together. If we walk in humility relationally, if we walk in humility before the Lord, relationally we understand that we have nothing to offer one another outside of the obedience and the truth that the Lord has worked within us. Do you hear that? Do you get that? You have nothing to offer a brother or sister except for the obedience that the Lord has worked into your life and the truth that he has entrusted to you. Anything outside of that that you offer does not do spiritual good. Love one another in accordance to God's word. Overcoming through Christ means that we have right belief and that we walk in devoted love for him and for one another. And that devoted love is marked by obedience. But thirdly, it's not just obedience. Look at verse 3. Right belief, devoted love, and joyful obedience. Joyful obedience. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. You know, John could have stopped there, and it would have been perfectly right. It would have been perfectly spirit-inspired. He could have stopped and just said that, that this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. But he continues on, he says, and his commandments are not burdensome. Don't you love how blunt and how straightforward and how plain John is? 
The Holy Spirit through John is. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't overly caveat or overly qualify his statement. It's just pure and unbridled truth. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Well, dear friend, God is sovereign. This is his world. He makes the rules. God is also holy in his nature, and he clearly defines the way that we show our love for him then is through obedience, through being conformed to that same holy nature. Peter said, be holy just as he who called you is holy in all your conduct and in all your behavior. Think about our catechism. What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Children, how do we glorify God? How do we glorify God? By loving Him and doing what He commands. If you would love God, you do what He commands. So John says two things in verse 3 that I want to zone in on a little bit further. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, keep his commandments, and those commandments are not burdensome. We keep his commandments. That's the Greek word tereo. It has the idea of preserving and keeping and watching over something. John has already said, we really could go back even to verse 2, that we are to observe the Lord's commandments. That's the Greek term Poieo. You remember back to 1 John 3. That's the word that speaks of practice, of the habit, and, and the pattern of your life. And so pull those together. And what do you get? We display our love for the Lord by making it our habit to protect, to protect, to preserve, to guard, and to closely do all that the Lord commands. You know, so many who would call themselves followers of Christ, so many who would call themselves evangelicals today really are completely unconcerned with doing what the Lord commands, much less with closely guarding, making it the habit of your life to practice and to do all that He commands. It's an active, disciplined obedience where We seek to know and to do. That's how you protect and preserve. You know what he commands. You can't protect and preserve that which you do not know. So to observe his commands and to keep his commands, we must know his word. And then by grace, by his spirit working in us, the pattern of our life and the desire of our heart will be to do them all. It's where you find your joy. Kissmacher states about this, that love for God does not consist merely of spoken words, even if they're well-intentioned, but of determined action that demonstrates obedience. It's the love of God, determined action that demonstrates obedience. Let's note now, and, and this is where it really really comes together as far as what, what do we do with this? How do we go from here? John doesn't just say that we keep his commandments. He says that his commandments are not burdensome. We keep his commandments joyfully. His commandments are not a heavy, weighty drag on us. This word burdensome, I want to just give you some definitions, and really I just want to let the Holy Spirit work through some of these meanings of this word and just let you examine, let me examine our hearts, see if the Lord's commandments are a burden to us. Burdensome comes from the Greek word baros. Perhaps you've heard of the weather instrument, a barometer. It's something that measures the air pressure. Uh, Baros then symbolizes a weight, but there's more definitions Linked to it. It's a weight or a burden. See the word severe, stern, 
imposing, unsparing, even cruel and violent come up as definitions of burdensome. Those who love the Lord, dear friend, do not see his commands as stern, severe, imposing a weight, a burden, unsparing, oppressive, cruel, violent, harsh, unruly, unhelpful. You see his commandments and your response is joy to do what he says. That's the opposite of a heart that sees his commands as burdensome. You say that keeping, protecting, and preserving the Lord's commands are a joyful, honoring privilege and delight. Augustine said, our souls are restless until they find their rest in the Lord. Our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee. Our souls are restless until we find rest in doing what the Lord commands. One who overcomes in Christ, dear friend, hear this. The one who overcomes in Christ is so transformed in the heart that you love the Lord so deeply that you want to keep every jot and tittle of his law. You want to know it and you want to do it. What was it that our Savior said in John chapter 4? said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That is my food. That is my joy. That is my desire. Dear friend, what we need to work toward in, in, in this age in which we just want to waste so much time and be so frivolous and trivial in everything we do, what you as a saint and a follower of Christ need to make your goal is that, that spiritual work strengthens you, that it revitalizes you, that it gives you rest and brings you joy. You may end a a Sunday, Lord's Day, physically exhausted. We're up here several hours in the morning. We come back and spend more time up here in the evening together. It can be a, a long day physically. Dear friend, does your heart go home Sunday night rejuvenated? renewed, energized for the week ahead to go out, to go forth, to hold forth the word of life, to show Christ and to make him known. As you mature in Christ, as we mature in Christ, you will find spiritual rest and rejuvenation in serving walking with and obeying the Lord. It's not a drag. It's not a weight on you. You must be so full of love for the Lord and resulting love for others that you give all of your strength to obey Him. Now, I'm going to say something now, and I want you to hear the whole statement because if you just hear the first part, you're going to say he contradicted himself. So, Hear the whole statement. Obedience is a weighty thing. It's not a burden. It's not a drag. But it's a weighty thing when we understand the depth of what we are called to do. And when we understand how short we fall of the mark and the standard of Jesus Christ. But when you feel that weight. When you sin for the hundredth time. First, dear friend, repent. Don't sin for the hundredth time. Stop. Resist temptation. Flee from temptation. Draw near to God and let Him strengthen you. But then when you have sinned for the hundredth, the thousandth, the millionth time, and you feel the weight of the calling of your obedience, dear friend, don't wallow in self-pity. Don't lay there paralyzed because you realize you've offended a holy God again and laid more sinful weight upon Christ at the cross. Rather, lift your eyes to to heaven. Lift your eyes to the cross. See that Christ endured the shame and the agony of the cross because he had a joy set before him that you would be his people. Then run. Run to Christ. Run to his cross. Receive his mercy. 
rejoice in the God and Savior of your salvation. Overcoming through Christ results in joyful obedience, produces joyful obedience, and it results in joyful obedience. So we see that to overcome through Christ, we need right belief, we need devoted love, we need to walk in joyful obedience, and then we need to pursue, fourthly and finally, a triumphant faith. Triumphant faith. Verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So we're talking about life in, love for, fidelity to the Lord. And what does that all result in? That right belief, that devoted love, that joyful obedience, what does it result in? Triumphant faith. An overcoming, overwhelming faith. Really, this verse could be translated something like this, for whatever is born of God overcomes. And this is the overcoming, that our faith has overcome the world. So you have those three terms, overcomes, victory, and overcoming. They all come from the Greek word that we, I guess, in the U.S. would pronounce as Nike. It means overcoming, conquering, victory, overwhelming. This is the victory. You notice that John doesn't say here, this is the victor. You are the victor. He doesn't say that. He says, this is the victory. Because this victory is given to you by faith in Christ. Your foe, dear friend, hear this and be sobered. Your foe is mighty in power. He is greater than you in strength. Remember what John has just said. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Ephesians 2, Paul reminds us that we are saved and kept saved by grace through faith. Our faith that saves us is a gift of God. It's not of our works so that we don't boast about it. All who are born of God will overcome all of God's children prevail over Satan. But your victory over the world is because of your faith. And your faith is a merciful gift of God. So we have a mighty foe. We fight a mighty battle. But take heart, dear friend, because... We see here that if our strength was our own, it would fail. If we fought in our own strength, we, you would not win the victory, assuredly. But the strength of your heart is not your own. But Psalm 73, 26 say, My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you realize your heart will fail? You don't have the strength to prevail over Satan. But you don't battle in your own strength. You put on the armor of God and you stand firm in the strength of his might. Put on the armor and you walk in that armor and that strength every single day. Not a day goes by where you don't need to clothe yourself in the armor of God. And there are some saints I know who take that very literally and will start their day by reading Ephesians 6 and proverbially putting on that armor of God. The fullness and the finality of Christ's victory at the cross and as he was resurrected and when he ascended, the fullness and finality of Christ's victory is why you can have joy in the midst of this great battle. Because if we didn't have that hope of the fullness and the finality of his victory, you know, that's what Hebrews 11 was talking about at the end of the chapter. Those Old Testament saints hadn't seen the fullness of the work of Christ. But we have, so how much more, dear saints, should we overcome? 
We seek to display a triumphant faith because it's a war that Jesus won at the cross. Dear friend, we ought to pursue this victory. We ought to display faith in Christ's triumphant saving work. We do that by holding to right belief, by walking in devoted love, and by practicing joyful obedience. Would you overcome the world, dear friend, by walking in genuine faith? Would you hold to the Scripture's truth about Jesus, that He is the Christ and the Son of God? Would you devotedly love the Lord because of your love for Him, obey His Word, and then flowing out of that, be able to properly and rightly love your fellow saints? Would you strive to walk in obedience and strive to see it more and more. Because it's not going to happen. It does not happen overnight that you see obedience as this great joy and duty. But day by day, year by year, walking with the Lord, you find more and more and more delight in walking in His truth. The duties of obedience and overcoming must mark the church. But if we pursue these things without being marked by joy, we miss the mark completely. So pursue obedience. Pursue an overcoming faith. But dear friend, pursue by God's grace and through His Spirit to be a, a Christian who displays eternal hope and joy. May the Lord write His word on our hearts May he be pleased with and praised by the lives of his people. Let's pray. Father, we come now and indeed I do ask that you would write your word upon our hearts. That we would hear and receive and be able to apply its truth. Lord, I pray that you would give us a deep faith an abiding, remaining faith, an overcoming faith. Lord, I pray that we would love you, that we would obey you, that we would love one another. I pray that you would fill us with this great sense of the honorable duty of obedience. May it be our food to do the will of you, our holy, heavenly Father. Lord, help us to have a faith that glorifies you, knowing that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to your glory alone. Transform us by your Spirit for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.